Welcome back to The Matters Podcast, brought to you by Clio, the world's leading provider of cloud-based legal software. I'm Nefra McDonald, Affinity Partnerships Manager here at Clio. And I'm Jack Newton, Clio's co-founder and CEO. For season two of Matters, we're focusing on client-centered lawyering, talking a lot about the why and how of being client-centered. If you're interested in a primer on the client-centered model in the legal industry, check out Jack's book, The Client-Centered Law Firm. In today's episode, we are shifting slightly to look specifically at how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed legal in permanent ways and accelerated the movement toward client-centered legal practice. When the pandemic first broke out, we conducted a series of interviews that became the Daily Matters podcast, and we ended up doing over 100 episodes, discussing a whole host of changes that the legal industry was seeing in real time as a result of COVID. You can still find those episodes on our website, and there's a ton of valuable insight there. But today, we want to specifically highlight COVID's impact on legal client service and ways that law firms should be adapting in light of this. We thought Charlene Theodore was a great person to kick off this discussion. As president of the Ontario Bar Association, Charlene is witnessing firsthand the changes that COVID-19 is bringing to the legal industry, specifically for lawyers and their clients. And she says not all the big changes are what you'd expect. There's been a bit of an evolution, right? And so there wasn't, uh, in my opinion, with some few few exceptions in my observation, there wasn't really a, a sticking point in terms of adopting it. Right. And that's kind of really what jettisoned us into the next level of adoption, tech adoption in law, because we were all forced to adopt it. There was no, you know, can I come into your office? Do I have to get on this Zoom or do I have to get on this application or technology? Because no one had a choice. I do know lawyers in private practice who still have clients saying, look, I really, really want to come in. I think it was really the, the kind of the, the really um, heavy lifting in terms of change and culture change happened within the practice, right? We are not a profession that is doing really well relative to other professions when it comes to self-care. And so I think the lessons that we learned in terms of client service were really on the practitioner side. And so, you know, as an organization and myself personally, we are really driving home some of those um, not just mental health, but really focusing on wellness. Uh, I myself, I even find it hard, you know, when I'm in front of the desk all day, there aren't these natural meetings and breaks that allow me to get up or go to lunch with somebody, you know? And so, you know, we really took a lead in kind of preaching that message uh, to take time for yourself, right? I think in 2020, we blurred the line um, between work and home, um, at levels that we haven't even seen before, even for the, you know, highest billing associates and partners. And so I think from a client service perspective, the fact that we've invested in the technology infrastructure is going to provide a great foundation for a hybrid model where clients can interact, uh, could have that choice, right? In terms of interacting with their client. And I think that that as a, as a as, so as in-house counsel, I'm also a consumer of legal services, right? And so having that choice and that autonomy um, in terms of saying, these are your options, right? This, you could pick how you want to interact with us and, and have it really driven by the client. I think that that's what we're starting to see. On the other side, if you want your associates to continue 
to do good work. Uh, what we might see emerging is some of the some of the self wellness tools into like you know you may see on your iPhone or your Android integrated into some of these tech uh, tools, these AI work allocation tools um, that we're that we're seeing right now. And I'm I'm curious, how are organizations like the Ontario Bar Association helping law firms adapt to the changes that we're seeing in a post COVID world? And 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 maybe you know more broadly, what opportunities do you see for bar associations of all stripes to to better support some of the needs on that front? So one of the first things we did is we put in place over 300 virtual courtrooms at all levels of court in Ontario. Um, we provided training on how to use them to almost 500 judges. We provided complimentary virtual boardrooms right off the bat, the bat in March of 2020 um, and remote arbitration and mediation services. And what another thing that we did that was really great and in line with something that we're, we just started again is last year we produced a fully online recreated judge alone criminal trial based on real transcripts that allowed us to see, right, how it plays out in the virtual world, the back and forth of a real trial, what could go wrong using real judges, real lawyers, real evidence and real witnesses. And then again, and again, um, you know, I, 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 I think you'll agree with me on this. This is the kind of innovation that we see in other sectors, right? That, that really um, innovative and uh, thorough testing, testing models that we've adopted at, at the OBA um, that we'd like to see more broadly adopted here. Coming out of that, the remote trial, uh, we created a reference guide for online lawyering. So all that's leading to the work that we're currently doing now. Ontario's introduced case lines, which is an online document filing document management system for the courts. Um, and so, again, what we're doing for the bar is we're partnering with case, case lines and we're going to be the trainer. And so, again, we're providing um, a, a, a kind of a sandbox work environment um, where not just lawyers, right, uh, but when you think about who is really kind of doing the bulk of the work for some lawyers in terms of document management, getting ready, leading up to trials, their assistance. And so we're providing uh, lawyers with hands-on training before they go live on case lines. And we also provide um, their paralegals, their clerks, their assistants uh, with train the trainer uh, training so they can take that back to the office. So uh, we're leading, but I think we're leading collaboratively uh, with the profession. And as um, we start to roll out uh, and um, decide what kind of model we want for our, our, our legal workplaces, be they in-house, um, in private practice, and what kind of model we want for our courts and tribunals. I just think that bar associations should consult, should consult with their stakeholders, but realize as a bar association, you're in a unique, unique position to have a drone's eye view of what's going on across the province, what's going on in every practice area. So you should have a position as an executive director and president and board of a bar association um, and be prepared to advocate for that position uh, for the good of the profession. In, in addition to what we've talked about to this point, what other changes do you think the industry needs to embrace to prepare for the future? Uh, this is my favorite question of all time. I get it all the time and I love to answer it. So thank you. Um, you know, my mandate uh, as president, even though I started my presidency at uh, the beginning of a uh, pandemic um, and at the globalization um, of the Black Lives Matter movement last summer, um, the mandate was already in place. It's just, you know, um, I think a, a nod to 
our thinking as an organization, in my view, in terms of what needs to happen in workplaces in this sector, that it fits so well in some of the problems that we're facing now. And so my mandate is work that works. And I believe truly that we are at the intersection, Jack, of a traditional, mostly homogenous boardroom culture in this profession and a younger, more diverse, more globally thinking cohort of lawyers who are going to be the leaders of legal workplaces of tomorrow. While I feel fortunate to work in a profession and to lead a profession that has invested tons and tons of time uh, into various aspects of EDI, whether it's women in the profession, um, diversity on certain points, LGBTQ issues, Indigenous issues, disability, we are certainly not where we need to be. And uh, that's why I created Work That Works, because the work that works for Black lawyers, Indigenous lawyers, women lawyers, parents, caregivers of any gender is work that works for everyone, including your clients. And so I'm, I'm proud of the work um, that we've done with the profession this year on Work That Works. I'm proud of the podcast and the conversations um, that we're having about these issues. But essentially, you know, where the profession needs to go is to continue to lean in and to really examine, again, from an innovation, because I think that this is innovation, right? Work, fundamental workplace culture change is my innovation. Like, that's my innovation thing, right? Um, I don't always think about innovation as a software or hardware or product, because if you are going to make these things happen, you know, you, it, it takes creative thinking. It takes looking at what people are doing in the tech sector and other sectors where they've really got it far ahead of us, right, in terms of um, how we hire, retain, promote, uh, and train lawyers of all diverse backgrounds. And from a sustainability perspective, in terms of ESG, I not only think about in terms of the environmental impact of how we operate our workplaces, but I think about the fact that many of our legal workplaces, um, including uh, Clio, right? This is not a fly-by-night operation. These large firms are not fly-by-night operations. The the names on the doors are people who are, have long since stopped practicing or are, are kind of not with us anymore. And you want to ensure that your culture, you provide a place that lawyers of all diverse backgrounds can do their best work because they're your future leaders. And if you don't get about the business of learning how to do that, that is not a sustainable business. That is not a business that is going to be around and thriving and competitive 50 years from now, 20 years from now, quite frankly, maybe even five to 10 years from now. I liked Charlene's take on how the pandemic has changed the work environment for lawyers. I think in past episodes, we've heard a lot about how clients who didn't want to meet virtually are now willing to meet their lawyer through Zoom. But there are many other ways in which the traditional work environment for lawyers is shifting. We've all had to make so many adjustments. And like Charlene said, COVID has really blurred the line between work and home in an industry where a lot of the time that line was already fuzzy. You can say that again. And while it's true that many law firms were forced to move to an online service model for the first time, it's also true that a lot of firms were already operating remotely, either partially or completely, before the pandemic. That's exactly what Elise Bowie told me. She practices family law and is a guardian ad litem in the Seattle area. Her firm, the Elise Bowie Family Law Group, was already able to work remotely before COVID, so the pandemic brought about a different kind of change for her. Well, the first thing was, at the, I mean, we're here in Seattle, so we obviously got this pandemic really early. 
and we're a virtual firm and have been virtual for six years. So um, the initial part of COVID didn't freak us out, you know, the having to go virtual, we were put on lockdown so early. But what did freak me out is I had no idea what was going to happen. And so the thing that I did most um, readily, and I mean, most first, was I started doing all the consults in the office, because I knew that it was going to be super important to keep clients coming in and keep cash flow going because I had no idea what it was going to look like. So at the time, some associates were doing consults, but their conversion rates, you know, were not really high. And it was so it was an experiment for me to just go back to doing all the firm consults. And I thought that that would be really helpful too, just from an access to justice perspective. I mean, here people were being put on lockdown, losing their jobs, all kinds of crazy stuff was happening in the family law arena with parenting plans, you know, travel, just all kinds of things. So I thought, you know, I could hop on the phone with every single person that reached out to our office. And if, if I couldn't help them and I couldn't serve them as their attorney, I could at least offer them resources. And so, I mean, I literally did consults like 10 hours a day for months. And that was really helpful. I mean, who knew I could really convert cases really well focused on that. And so, I mean, we grew 400%, I think, in 2020. Wow. Um, so, I mean, I, I had to hire like 20 people in the year. I mean, it was it was wild growth. And um, I think, you know, being focused on me just talking to the people and giving them resources. And even now, I mean, people call today and they say, oh, I talked to Elise at the beginning of the pandemic and now I'm ready to hire. You know, so it's been this ongoing kind of thing. And so I would say that's how we initially adapted. And then obviously hiring that many people, we had to get systems in place and quick. So, you know, one of the big hires I made was somebody who was really um, a project manager type who could just really take our, our small law firm, which had about six people and now we're close to like 28 um, and, you know, really get those systems in place quickly to allow us to scale quickly. Now that we're starting to emerge to the other side of the pandemic, can you tell us what some of the lasting changes that you'll be making to your firm as a result of of some of your learnings over the course of the last year and a half? Sure. I mean, systems by far, I would say, is the biggest. You know, we um, are just kind of all over our systems. Um, secondarily, I would say is the consults. I mean, I have stayed pretty involved in client consults, actually. And I think that that has been a really important aspect. But also on the end of the case, me doing more follow up with clients so that they are having that continuity of care. And so I do calls with our clients, you know, towards the very end of their case and then at the end of their case. And I've then followed up with a lot of clients as well and do like Zoom lunches and Zoom coffees three months after their case, six months after their case, you know, to see what we can do. Because a lot of times there's bumpiness that happens right after the case and people are kind of shell-shocked. They've just gone through a divorce, you know, they're, they're moving, they've spent all this money on a divorce and then they might have a problem like with a title of a car or something. I can get on the phone and literally help them through some of the 
the things that might be real stumbling blocks to them, but might be kind of simple, you know, and we've seen it before. And so it might be easy. So really reaching out and having continuing in those relationships. And then also we do estate planning. And so a lot of times these people then turn into estate planning clients, because when you get divorced, you know, your estate plan needs to be addressed as well. And so that is something we have developed in estate planning practice during COVID, because we didn't used to do estate planning. And that, you know, it, it, it came obvious to me, people were looking to us at this time, and they wanted one stop shop where we could help them with all their family needs. And I find that people very much appreciate you know, when I set up coffees with them after their case. And we also have set up a client advisory board. And that's been really helpful too, to get input from clients on, I mean, we kind of can talk to them about ideas we have, you know, and, and it's interesting because it's not always clients who are thrilled. I mean, I've, you know, purposely reached out to clients who have had some unhappiness for whatever reason. And that's been really helpful too, to try to fix those relationships and see what we can do to get better. I'm curious, maybe you can share both what changes you've seen in your clients in terms of their preferences, as well as how they've responded to some of the changes you've been rolling out and how you run your firm. I would say one of the main changes I've seen in our clients, though in Seattle, I would say they've always been pretty tech heavy and the fact that we're virtual has never phased them but they are even more so like they, they have no interest in seeing me at some meeting if I can do it by zoom, like, you know, they don't want to go get in the traffic any more than I want to go get in the traffic and they want things to be more efficient. And one of the things that we have seen is more mediation, you know, temporary order mediation and early alternative dispute resolution in cases so that cases can be handled more effectively and more cost effectively. And so clients are loving that, you know, not having to go to court because court dates are so far out now, even now, and it takes us a long time to get them into court. And a lot of times, if we can just get one issue in front of a mediator, we can resolve it. And so using mediation has been a change and the clients are really appreciative of that change. And I would say for us, one of the big things that clients just appreciate is the fact that we have been virtual for so long that we are, I mean, we are completely unfazed by the virtual nature. We do everything and have the whole time we've had our firm electronically. And so our processes are very smooth. And I mean, we've gotten a fair number of clients from other firms where they've really had a hard time adjusting to the um, virtual nature. I mean, I'm actually meeting people and they're telling me that they've had paper files even during COVID. And I'm kind of stunned by that. I mean, just, I, I can't imagine how that might slow down a case. And the fact that we have always been virtual has made it where that part at least has been seamless for us. And it's also allowed us to bring in a lot of talent, which obviously my clients benefit from. I mean, we have a paralegal team of, I think, seven of them, and they're all have 20 years plus experience, you know, and the fact that they were able to come on and just keep going when they were maybe worried about their work somewhere else. And so that's been really helpful. This, this might be underscoring some of what you've already commented on, uh, Elise, but what are some of the lasting lessons of the COVID pandemic for you and your firm? 
I mean, you've got to be ready to pivot at any time for any reason. And because of that, your business needs to be nimble and nuanced. I mean, your business needs to be able to hear what your clients need and make changes to address them and and not be stuck in the, well, we've never done it this way. I mean, I have to tell you, I hate that phrase. <laughs> when somebody tells me, well, we've never done it, I'm like, okay, great. I don't care. You know, we're going to do it now. <laughs> and I think that just truly being nimble and listening to your clients, which means asking them. I mean, having those conversations, like what can I do to help you? How can we make this better for you? How is COVID impacting your family? And what can we do as family law attorneys to navigate some of those things, even if they might not be like classic legal issues, but what resources can we bring to bear? What professionals can we bring in? And just, I mean, you know, giving, uh, you know, what I mean, just caring. And I think that caring as a business owner during COVID really made a lot of difference. I mean, and just realizing that we were all in the same situation. And for me, I have this whole kind of motto, or I don't know what you'd call it, where I feel like as the owner, if I can pour into my team just as much as humanly possible, my team pours into our clients as much as they can. And so to me, to be a client-centered firm, that means I'm a team-centered leader in my firm. And being virtual and dealing with COVID in that way, again, being nimble, listening to my team, trying to be as flexible as humanly possible around their kids and their schooling responsibilities and all the things people were going through. And I think that's, um, for me, I, I would say it's that, just being as nimble as possible and not being stuck in any kind of way that might have worked in the past, realizing that we're in a whole new world, like Earth 2.0 or something. Earth 2.0, indeed. What a great example of a firm that was well set up for the changes COVID brought because they had already shifted to a client-centered model. Exactly. Elise is so good at clearly laying out the stakes and the solutions. Elise really eats and breathes her own advice to be nimble and ready to pivot. And it's obvious it's working based on the results she's seen. 400% growth in 2020, adding 20 people to her team, and expanding services to be a one-stop shop for families who need her assistance. It strikes me that if you're already in the practice of asking your clients how they want to be served, you can be more nimble on your feet when their needs change drastically, even due to a pandemic. Absolutely. Client-centered firms were in a better position heading into COVID because the minute the pandemic hit, they were already thinking about their clients and the new ways they needed to be served. That's something I think our next guest, Mitch Jackson, did really well. Mitch is a founding partner at Jackson Wilson, and in the legal world, he is a social media luminary. Here's part of my discussion with Mitch. And I'm, I'm curious, what were some of the specific ways you've seen COVID impact your clients and how they want to interact with your firm and, and, and also tell us how your firm adapted to meet those, those challenges and those shifting client expectations. We're still trying to figure all of this out, Jack, but after 35 years of practicing law, litigation, litigating cases and trying cases, I really felt like I had a good feel for the reality of what's going on when it comes to clients coming into the office with how we're servicing them. Now, a year, year and a half later, post-COVID, 
what I'm what I'm appreciating more so than ever is what I've been focusing on is the tip of the iceberg. And back then, the tip of the iceberg, the client's challenges, what's going on in his or her life, what's really the legal problem, what's the why behind why they're sitting across from our desk or in today's world on the other end of a Zoom, you know, why is that? And I think that iceberg's just bigger and deeper than it's ever been before. So having said that, we're really emphasizing, once again, listening to what the clients are telling us, trying to use our expertise to read behind the, between the lines, what's really going on. We're leading with empathy. Uh, oftentimes what we found, Jack, is what the client is, is reaching out to us about. It's generally, there's generally more to the story. There's a lot more that's resulted in this, this challenge festering into a legal issue. And so by helping our team listen, lead with empathy more so than ever, uh, taking that approach into litigation and trial work, how we're picking juries now, how we're going to be trying our cases. Once again, empathy is going to be the theme of everything we do. Uh, we want to take into consideration a new jury mindset. We want to, uh, uh, everyone's been through a lot and I don't want to beat up a witness on the stand that a jury is going to be feeling sorry for, even though that witness deserves to be beat up. There's another way to approach it. So a lot of us, Jack, are kind of reapproaching the practice of law and how we're litigating and trying our cases by leading with empathy, by trying to appreciate what everybody in the courtroom or in the law firm, what we've all been through together, and then take a step back, take a deep breath, and move forward with all of those things in mind to get the job done that needs to get done. So you, you've, you've talked about some of this in your last, in, in your previous response, Mitch, but maybe just to, to underscore, look a bit further out when your firm obviously had to make some pivots and immediate changes in response to the pandemic. Now that we're starting to see a light of the light at the end of the tunnel and we're emerging from the the COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the permanent changes you think will will last at your firm? I hope 99% of what we've incorporated and have been able to do this past year, I hope it continues because I think this is a, just a great new way of delivering legal services to the client, creating that exemplary client experience, having empathy. So having said all that, absolutely doubling down on the most important question that we ask our clients during the initial consultation after we've been retained that we asked in the past before COVID and what we're doing now, what we're asking today during that initial Zoom. And that is, you know, Jack, I'm glad you're trusting us with your case. I'm glad you're giving us an opportunity to help you. Let me ask you one more question before we, we sign off a Zoom. How would you like me to communicate with you? How would you like my team to communicate with you? We think that's the most important question we're asking right now because I may prefer a phone call, an email, or a text. You may want to see me eyeball to eyeball on a Zoom. You may prefer me reaching out to you with snail mail. You might refer to me reaching out to you with an audio message. And so we think it's really important for everyone on the team to double down on that question. How would you like us to communicate with you? And then, and then walk our talk, subject to state bar rules and regulations, subject to the technology that we're using here at the firm. If we're able to accommodate that client's desire, then that's what we're going to do. It's not always easy to do this, but I think it is always necessary. If a client comes back to Mitch, put a yellow tab on the top of a turtle and send it crawling my direction and we're good to go. Okay. 
I love the enthusiasm, great suggestion, but that's not going to work. So we also empower our team to go ahead and try to take the initiative during these conversations and come back with Jack. I'm going to run out of turtles after a week if we do things that way. I've got another suggestion. Would you be comfortable with A, B, or C? So always direct the conversation back to maybe something that works for you and your team based upon training, based upon technology, but always try to deliver your services, digital signatures, client updates through a private client portal, apps on the phone that allow them to check their case status, whatever they want to have available to them. And Clio, obviously I'm a fan, provides us with the ability to do all of these things. That's what we do. But we also make sure, Jack, that our team is walking the talk and actually implementing the solution that the clients specifically asked us to deliver. And, and Mitch, you know, as you, as you pointed out, every client is different. Uh, and and, and I, I think you're absolutely correct in your approach and in asking clients what their specific preferences are as they relate to, for example, how you communicate with them. But if we if we pop out at a macro level and just think about what what are some of the broad based and permanent changes you think we're seeing in consumer expectations? Can can you talk about what that looks like on average? How have you seen consumer preferences shift both pre and post pandemic, and and which of those changes do you think are are going to be permanent changes in consumer preferences? I think consumers, legal consumers like the option of not having to get in the car and drive down to the office, fight traffic and show up to sign a document. For example, whether they realize it or not, they want to be able to get their questions answered in a clean shirt, but while they still have their pajama bottoms on. Whether they, they tell you or not, consumers are looking for efficiency and they're looking for solutions delivered to them that don't inconvenience them because you're just as a law firm, you know, you're just a tap and a swipe away from that client going someplace else. So everything we do, Jack, uh, is smartphone friendly. Everything we do, we can deliver to our clients via our smartphones. So permanent changes that we will continue to suggest and we think the client wants is some type of video interaction, whether it's Zoom, whether it's some other service, specifically or especially if that service is smartphone friendly or tablet friendly. I think that's something that consumers really appreciate. They feel like they're right there looking us in the digital eyeballs. They feel like they want to reach out and just give you a big digital hug when you, when you share some legal solutions with them. So number one, the ease of video. Number two, digital signatures, document, digital document transfers. Okay, the different platforms that we use to exchange and obtain client signatures, whether it's on a settlement release, whether it's on a declaration for court, the last thing they want to do is come down to the firm, fight traffic, wait in the lobby, which hopefully they're not doing for too long, and sign a declaration that they could have just as easily done using some of the many services that are out there. Those are two things that jump out at me. Number three, I still feel, and I'm old school on this, having an efficient live phone uh, answering service or system, whether it's in your front office or it's a third party, it complements everything we've just talked about. That initial live voice where the operators or front office staff, they know the client's names, they know the client's tendencies, they check the CRM and they know how that client wants to communicate. And then delivering 
as we talked about, using Zoom, using digital signatures, using old school voice abilities via the telephone. I think that's key. There's one more thing. What clients have, have told us they really enjoy is when we're texting and emailing, which is a great way to communicate. We've incorporated into most of our emails uh, a service, which I'll mention if you want me to, but it's a service that allows us to actually do a personalized video within the email. So Jack, instead of you reaching out about a court case, Mitch, what was the department and date of our hearing? Instead of me just responding in an email or a team member responding in an email, what you get back in your email inbox is a short video, just like this. Hey, Jack, I'm glad you reached out. It's Wednesday morning, three in the afternoon Pacific. We're in Department 22. Just wanted to say hi. I hope you're doing well. I'll see you at the courthouse tomorrow. I'll be 15 minutes early. Hopefully you will too. Reach out with any questions. It's a little video email that they get from me. I feel like they, they get to know me better. It allows us to stand out above all the noise. It's something they tell their family members or neighbors about. And it's these little things that I think over time add up to create that experience that we've talked about, to create the uh, uh, the quality of services that we always want to deliver to our clients, and I think most lawyers do, they just don't how to know they don't know how to go about it. And so those are the things, Jack, that I see uh, having changed probably permanently moving forward. And I think firms that embrace these technologies and these approaches are the ones that will thrive. And I think firms that go back to old school ways, uh, eventually are just going to become uh, unimportant and irrelevant. I think what Mitch has been able to do really well is move to a client-centered model without changing everything about the way his firm works. Because moving to a new service model doesn't mean you have to change everything about your firm's operations. It just means you have to listen to your clients, keep the things that are working, and change the things that aren't working. That's been one of the big lessons for firms throughout COVID. Some existing techniques have continued to work, but a lot of things have had to change, and fast. And like Mitch said, a lot of new opportunities have arisen. Firms are trying different ways to serve their clients that they would have never considered before the pandemic. Mitch knows what he's talking about, and so does our next guest, who has already provided a ton of great insight on this season of Matters. That's right, Nefra. Bill Henderson is back to give us another perspective on how COVID has changed the legal game. Bill is the Stephen F. Burns Professor of Law at Indiana University, and he was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America by the National Law Journal. Here's what Bill had to say. Talk about how you've seen COVID accelerate the rate of change in the, the legal industry, some of the ways you see lawyers adapting and and maybe to what degree you think the impacts COVID has had on the profession will be permanent and, and lasting impacts? So uh, that's a really great question, uh, Jack. My, my friend, Dan uh, Carell, is, is written about that. He said that necessity is the mother of invention, it's the mother of adoption. And, he, and he's, I think he's borrowing that phrase from Peter Drucker. But his, his point was, we had Zoom. It was on our installed on our computers. We didn't use it until we absolutely had to. We had, we were we, we adopted it when we absolutely had to. And this is kind of like a, a benign uh, comet hitting the earth and, and forcing us to to it to accelerate our adoption. So we didn't realize the possibilities that. And uh, I think that there's going to be a lot of good from it because we could. There's you know, Jack. We don't have to get on those planes as much as we used. That said, when we do get on planes here. 
We're gonna we're gonna really relish the uh, the time we have uh, at communing with our industry peers and our customers. And so we're not gonna waste that time. We're not gonna be. Uh, we're not gonna be. Uh, I think that that's really good. We're gonna right size the use of technology and, and value really uh, treasure in person uh, communication for what it is. It's like a time to build relationships and trust, communicate, culture build. And so I, I, I think that that's that's good here. I'm a little worried about. Uh, you know, fear came fast, but it's going to leave slowly. So I'm a little worried about people getting comfortable about really believing, can we be in the same room and not get deathly sick? So that, that'll be a problem. But the, the, it totally revolutionized iFlip because, it, because we think it opened up the opportunity, real openness toward e-learning and uh, um, it online education because, uh, you know, you, we can do it pretty well. We can do it at a lower price point. Uh, we make convenient for people. And so it's, it, it was a complete, it was like, it was a benign comment for, for iFlip because it changed our business, you know, aspirations and it, we felt like it totally tenderized the market toward that education, which is, which leveled the playing field for us. The, the, the quote you mentioned that, that necessity is the mother of adoption. I, 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 I love what, what are some of the, uh, some of the technologies or, or even mindsets that you've seen adopted in in law firms with lawyers that, that it was maybe long overdue, but that COVID finally helped push over the, the ledge. Well, the, 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 the I think that the, the big issue would be, um, uh, remote working and collaboration. I mean, I think that that would be, that's the, that, that's the best example. I still feel like, uh, like, uh, uh, we, we, we still dramatically under invest and uh, in, 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 in just basic foundational training. For example, there's so many ways to, to improve a workflow if you actually do a process map. And we can save, I, I can engineer, I take 10 hours, I can save myself 100 hours the rest of the year if I take the 10 hours to process map and design a process. We just don't do it. And, and I think we're not there uh, yet. Uh, but, uh, but, but I think that the COVID sped up the idea maybe there is something to this technology and i still think it's going to be a long it's it, I, this is why i kind of pick it up on your point on education the sooner we can get these things in, installed in the in the in the educational level so we don't have to argue over when somebody wants to build time and they want to do their work and we want to educate we can just do a lot of the foundational education pushing into 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 the pre-career space I think it'll help employers because uh, we can take this burden off of them because the, it's expensive to train your workers uh, when they're on your payroll. Wouldn't you like to hire them when they're already trained? Right now, that's not an option. There's very few legal professionals that have this foundational trade. So maybe that's the, our closing question, Bill. If, if you had the opportunity to make, make a request of, of every legal educator out there to to think about, you know, how they reshape their programs, maybe anticipating what, what is a more client-centered post-COVID world, uh, maybe a more innovative post-COVID world. What would your asks be? Uh, this is my ask. Your actually very specific. <laughs> the uh, uh, I, I want a I want a, I want a, I want a one to three credit uh, a law school uh, course that, that can be taken mostly asynchronously through an iClip up. Uh, platform is not going to cost the school a lot of money, and that would open the door 
uh, toward a seven-month field placement. So your fifth semester of law school, the, the first semester of your 3L year, you could uh, you could go and you could work in Clio. You could go work in uh, a pick a law firm, you know, Palace uh, uh, Law in in, in 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 Washington or Perkins Coie or or or, or legal department or the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which has actually had some of our interns. We think that that's a game changer because people say, "Oh, the, the, why can't law law be an have an apprenticeship?" It can. It's permitted under the ABA rules. You can get paid and academic credit. And I think that uh, instead of asking law schools to adopt a radically different curriculum, just say, give me three hours and let me uh, and let us uh, uh, have the students do these these internships. Not everybody will take them, but some of them will. And I think it's going to dramatically, I mean, all the people that I was referencing on this and their session here went through that seven-month program, totally changed their lives. They were, they were good, solid, middle-of-the-class law students. And they're, they're going to have dramatically different careers just because they had those early career experiences. Well, Jack, I think this note about future training for law students in school is a great place to end this episode. It's a silver lining that COVID-19 has sped up the adoption of different techniques for virtual legal service. But Bill is right. One of the next steps should be changing the training so new lawyers can hit the ground running in this new virtual world. Absolutely. That's why I always love talking to Bill. He's constantly thinking one step ahead of the rest of us. So Jack, we've reached the end of this episode, which is where I always ask you the same question. What are you taking away from these discussions today? That's a tough one because I think back not only to these conversations, but to all the ones we had on Daily Matters during lockdown. COVID-19 has changed so many things, not only in legal, but in our lives. I guess the main thing I would add today is to remember the human side of the pandemic's effects on both you and your clients. It's easy to think about the procedural side of things, meeting on Zoom, sharing and signing documents electronically, things like that. But there's also a mental and emotional toll that this difficult period has had on all of us. And keeping that in mind while you're in the midst of serving your clients can make a huge difference. Thanks, Jack. You know I'm a big advocate of self-care and lawyer wellness, so what you just said speaks to me in a major way. Thank you, Nefra. And to our listeners, we are so glad you've joined us for this episode of Matters Season 2. This has been a presentation of Season 2 of Matters, based on the client-centered law firm, the best-selling book by Jack Newton. Matters is hosted by Jack Newton and Nefra McDonald, produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and brought to you by Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider. Be sure to subscribe to Matters wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit us at clio.com. To read Jack's book, search for The Client-Centered Law Firm wherever you buy your books.